When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about two homeless men, both strangers, both forgotten, who were forced to live on London streets for two very different reasons. And although their stories are both tragic, you won't have heard about their plight, as nobody cared. Murder Mile is researched using authentic sources. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 142, The Invisible Men of Marble Arch. Today, I'm standing in Marble Arch, W1, one street north of the Hyde Park bombing, Three streets west of Annie Sutton's sadistic stalker. One street east of the murder of police constable Jack Avery. And one street south of the stranger revenge attack at the Victory Cafe. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Situated on a traffic island between Edgware Road, Park Lane, Oxford Street and Bayswater. Marble Arch, formerly known as Tyburnia, is named after the infamous White Marble Arch, designed by John Nash in 1827. Inspired by Paris's Arc de Triomphe, this 45-foot high, 60-foot wide and 30-foot deep monument was originally the state entrance to Buckingham Palace, but it was relocated here in 1851. Since then, it has had no purpose having been requisitioned as an army barracks in the 40s and a police station in the 60s. It is now used for storage and there are plans afoot to recite it again. Being a bafflingly pointless landmark, Marble Arch is often used as a place of protest 
where the furious give impassioned speeches to a small but like-minded crowd of nodding heads, where tourists take selfies whilst quaffing that quintessentially English delicacy, fish and chips, which actually originated in Israel. And if you're really lucky, you'll see a fistfight between three floating yodas, all called Yergi. At night, Marble Arch becomes a very different world, a makeshift shanty town of cardboard boxes, where London's forgotten bed down and vanish. Oddly, for a group of people so invisible and forgotten, too many are frequently abused, beaten, robbed, and persecuted simply because they don't have a home. Two such homeless men were Godrotala Barani. And Mark Morrison. They didn't know each other. They had never met, and they had nothing in common except that they both lived on the streets. Both had been shunned by the wider world, and yet a cruel series of circumstances would force them together. As it was here, on Friday the twenty-second of June, twenty twelve, at about three a.m. The Godrotala Barani strangled Mark Morrison to death, and although this incident would highlight the failures in our overworked mental health and immigration systems, because of who they were, it was barely reported. Homelessness is very much an invisible issue. From a population of 66 and a half million, it is estimated there are 280,000 homeless people living in the UK. But homelessness is a word which is often misused and misconstrued, as it doesn't just mean someone who sleeps rough; it refers to anyone without a permanent place to live. But where is any home, no matter how provisional, can provide some safety and stability? For many, their only option is to live wherever they can find shelter—on the street, in a doorway, or on a bench. Different organisations have estimated it's anywhere between two and a half thousand and nine thousand people sleeping rough in the UK every night. Left to the elements, they live without life's basics, like fresh water. Clean clothes, heat, safety, and food. But there are many reasons for a person to become homeless. Some have no option: forced out owing to family breakup, a divorce, loss of work or income, cut benefits or conviction. Some are fleeing abuse, violence, persecution, or are actively escaping life stresses. Some are mentally unwell, having slipped through the cracks. And others are veterans, abandoned by the country that they fought for. Sadly, it's still a criminal offence to sleep rough. And with no fully functional system in place to provide an alternative, many homeless are arrested and bounced between a wealth of grossly underfunded agencies, only to be turfed out once a box has been ticked. Life on the streets is dangerous, 
Over the last five years, 650 homeless people died on London streets. With 770 dying each year in England and Wales, owing to hunger, assault, hypothermia and murder. Although, you'll never hear their stories, as Dead Tramp doesn't sell newspapers. Asylum Seeker Kills UK Vagrant only sells in the trashy racist tabloids, and as many outlets are more about making money than disclosing facts. Too many newspapers churn out a puke of predictable pap, usually about unfaithful footballers, two-faced politicians, or a minor celeb weeping over a meaningless woe, just in time for the release of their book. And even though the old press adage is, if it bleeds, it leads, we all know the true criteria when it comes to reporting crime. That a drug death is usually the victim's fault. That the death of a black man is probably gang-related. That a dead sex worker is only of interest if her killer is given a salacious nickname like the Ripper. And that a missing child is only a tragedy if they're white, blonde and pretty. The ugly, the poor, the unknown and the marginalised simply aren't worth the ink. And if they're homeless or immigrants, people care even less. Two such men, who shielded by the shadow of Marble Arch in the summer of 2012, were Godrotola Barani and Mark Morrison. Two very different men, on the same street, for two very different reasons. Forty-six-year-old Mark Morrison originated from the Dunblane area of Stirling in Scotland, and later he lived in Glasgow. Described as polite and pleasant, Mark had a successful career as a chef, but owing to personal problems, he travelled to London in the spring of 2012 and became homeless. Living on the street, he stayed out of trouble, he kept to a regular routine, and he was easy to spot owing to his oval sun-bleached face, his tangled salt-and-pepper hair, and a ragged goatee beard. Sleeping rough, his favourite spot was a wooden bench beside Marble Arch. Why, we don't know. But maybe the endless roar of traffic lulled him to sleep. The posh hotels of Park Lane reminded him of his old life, or surrounded by other homeless people pitched in tents, maybe he found safety in numbers. And that's all the press could be bothered to report. It wasn't worth their time digging into his past, to ask why he'd ran away, why he was sleeping rough, and what could have been done to help. Godrotola Barani was either 26, 27, 29 or 32 years old, depending on which source you trust. Some said he was born in Afghanistan or Iran, as if the two were interchangeable. But given that a basic search confirms that his name was Persian and that he spoke Farsi, we can safely assume that he was Iranian. But soon, 
you'll see where this lazy journalism came from. As for too many tabloids, foreign is foreign. Speaking limited English, Godrey Tuller previously lived in Sheffield before coming to London. Being little and round, he was five foot six inches tall, of medium build, and had a broad babyish face. And just like Mark, the details of his life weren't worth the press bothering to get right. So we've no idea why he fled, how he travelled, who he was, or anything about his family, his history, or his life. And as one of 35,000 applications submitted every year, the life of Godretola Barani was forgotten, and his existence was boiled down to just two highly contentious words. Asylum seeker. But for both men, more than any other year, 2012 would be a bad year to be homeless. The International Olympic Committee has the honor of announcing that the Games of the 30th Olympiad in 2012 are awarded to the city of London. On the 6th of July 2005, London won the bid to host the 2012 Olympic Games. At a cost of $14.8 billion, it would convert a 500-acre site of toxic wasteland in one of London's most deprived boroughs into an Olympic park, developing a wealth of new homes, jobs, roads, facilities, and a legacy which lasts today. Still reeling from the economic collapse of 2008, the opening ceremony was a spectacle like no other, even if the Queen had forgotten to tell her face, and it was a vital moment of pride for Great Britain. But not everything about the 2012 Olympics was as glorious as it seemed. Anticipating a huge influx of tourists, bringing a much-needed revenue to the city, with the Tottenham riots of one year earlier still fresh in the world's mind, London needed to be seen as clean and safe. In 2009, London Mayor Boris Johnson pledged to clean up the city and to end homelessness for good. But the methods employed were rough, heavy-handed and just a smokescreen. Operation Poncho deliberately targeted the homeless by establishing no-sleep and dispersal zones in tourist hotspots. It increased the police's stop-and-search powers to tackle smoking, drinking and sleeping in public places. Any haunts favoured by rough sleepers were continually wet down with high-pressure hoses. And any bench or ledge was fitted with steel railings and dulled spikes to make anything but sitting upright impossible. Near to tourist spots, cycleways and Olympic highways, any temporary shelters were removed. And as happens before every royal wedding, many undesirables were forcibly bagged up and bussed out to neighbouring towns like Brighton, Reading and Slough. Operation Poncho's ethos wasn't to solve the problem of homelessness, but to push these unfortunates out of sight and out of mind.
so as if their lives weren't stressful enough, rough sleepers were marginalized even more than usual. For Mark, who kept himself to himself, it was an inconvenience. But for Godretola, with immigration and mental health services under even greater strain, his homelessness made him even less of a priority and even more invisible. In autumn 2011, Godretola was being held at Brigstock House, a dispersal unit in Thornton Heath used as long-term accommodation for asylum seekers until their applications have been decided. But after six months of waiting, with his application rejected, his accommodation was withdrawn. Guidelines were followed, boxes were ticked, papers were filed, and somewhere in an office, a faceless official crossed off yet another number from their list. Next! But while Godrutala would appeal this decision, he would be forced to sleep rough. With no home, this made his application even harder, as with vagrancy being illegal and hindering his immigration status, into the system and the city, he would vanish. Six years earlier, Britain was riding high, having won the Olympic bid. We don't like winning, as it gives us nothing to grumble about. But again, we don't like losing, especially to the French. But following the financial crash of 2008, being cash-strapped, the British taxpayer bulked at the initial budget pitched at 2.8 billion, which had since ballooned to a whopping 8.7 billion. Behind schedule, the city had become a building site, as the run-up to the Olympics were beset by a series of embarrassing blunders. Described as a predictably British clusterfuck, Wenlock and Mandeville, our mascots who look like brightly coloured flaccid penises, were quickly ditched. Bojo, our flag-waving mayor, and dare I say it, current prime minister, got stuck on a zip wire. The ticket system was so farcical, it left thousands with either no tickets or an impossible-to-pay bill being forced to watch crap like horse dancing. Local businesses were banned from the site as the only official food outlet was the world's largest McDonald's. G4S had bulged up so badly that the British Army was called in to provide security and everyone's expectations were so low as A, we're British, and B, the opening ceremony had been announced as featuring 50 real sheep. Of course, we've all forgotten about the crappy build-up to London 2012, having replaced it with the triumphs of Olympic heroes like Usain Bolt, Michael Phelps, Jessica Ennis, Chris Hoy, Mo Farah, Nicola Adams, Laura Kenny, Gabby Douglas, Bradley Wiggins and David Weir, to name but a few. As well as Tom Daly's awesome dive, Stefan Feck's belly flop, and even Oscar Pistorius, before the, you know, 
the Queen and James Bond parachuted in. Mr. Bean played Chariots of Fire. The Paralympics were an absolute triumph. And Danny Boyle's opening ceremony was, pardon my French, fucking brilliant. That shift in mood started the moment the ceremony began on Friday the 27th of July 2012. But in the weeks prior, as Union Jack Bunting adorned the streets, London 2012 was considered by most as a waste of money. But for Godritola, the Olympics meant nothing as being stressed by his failed immigration status, his imminent risk of deportation, and his homeless situation. They all impacted on his mental health. In the early hours of Sunday the 17th of June 2012, Godrotola was seen banging on the Privy Purse Gate of Buckingham Palace. He demanded to see the Queen, as only she could help him, and he claimed that he was the king of Afghanistan, which is why so many lazy journalists got his nationality wrong. Stopped by the police, even though their powers had been increased under Operation Poncho, as he hadn't broken in, caused damage or a disturbance, he wasn't an immediate threat to himself or others, and more importantly, he wasn't making London look messy to the tourists he was sent on his way. It is said that one in three asylum seekers suffer some form of depression, anxiety or PTSD. But was he suffering from a mental collapse? Or was this simply a cunning ploy to progress his asylum? The next day, on Monday the 18th of June, he did it again banging on the gates of Buckingham Palace and claiming to be a king. Believing he was mentally unwell, under Section 136 of the Mental Health Act, the police were authorised to take him to a place of safety, in this case, a hospital. But what can you do if you're in a foreign country and you don't know that you're mentally unwell? Godrotola was assessed that day at St. Thomas's Hospital, first by junior psychiatrist Dr. Nancy Butler, and later by Dr. Nirja Cabra, a senior psychiatrist, with his words translated by a Farsi interpreter. But then, mental illness isn't like a broken leg. It's not immediately obvious. It can easily be faked, and are often caused by intoxicants, stress, injury and other illnesses. So often a specialist can only take the patient's word about what they claim they've seen or heard. In both assessments, he said that three times he had attempted to kill himself. Once by setting himself on fire, once by stabbing himself and once by asphyxiating himself with gas. None of which needed medical assistance afterwards and left no physical scars. In both assessments, he said he heard voices telling him that he needed to kill someone within three days to become the King of England, 
but he had no history of violence, showed no signs of aggression, and police had detained him without issue. In this case, it was decided that he was suffering from a situational crisis because he was homeless and was awaiting an adjudication of his asylum claim. But Godratola didn't help his own assessment. Throughout, he appeared anxious and agitated, owing to an appointment the next day with the UK border agency at 11am. And believing that this was his last chance, he asked the doctors to write a letter to support his asylum application. Unsurprisingly, the doctors believed that he was faking his symptoms. It was never reported whether he attended that meeting, but on Tuesday the 19th of June, he returned to St. Thomas's Hospital complaining of back pain. He didn't claim to hear voices or mention that he was the king. On Wednesday the 20th, once again he returned to St. Thomas's, but this time with a new issue. But being declared as fit and well, that day he was discharged. And on Thursday the 21st, he returned to Buckingham Palace, but this time he refused to let go of the gate. Being even more agitated and determined to see the Queen, he was restrained, escorted to safety, and his case was referred to social services, who requested that, once again, he be mentally assessed. At the Gordon Hospital, an adult psychiatric centre on Bloomberg Street in Pimlico. Over several hours, a number of doctors assessed him, but found no grounds to admit him. He couldn't be committed, and it wasn't worth arresting him. So being issued with an exclusion order, which banned him from entering the royal parks, including Buckingham Palace. That evening, Godratola Barani was released. As a homeless asylum seeker, he was little, harmless, and invisible. But just a few hours later, he would do the unthinkable. Five weeks before the start of London 2012, the city pulsed with tension and stress. The bunting was up and the tourists were out but businesses were rightfully grumbling as a £13 billion boost to the economy had failed to materialise. The unfinished Olympics highway was a national embarrassment, which would later leave exhausted athletes stuck on hot coaches for hours. Terrorists were still being dicks, so in parks and on top of tower blocks sat batteries of surface-to-air missiles to shoot down any hijacked airliners. But for once, like a drizzly little miracle, the typically inclement British weather was actually okay. The Olympics was upon us, nothing else existed, and with many having been bussed out to neighbouring towns whose homeless populations had mysteriously doubled, the rough sleepers of Marble Arch were invisible. By day, tourists flocked to take selfies of this purposeless monument, 
By dusk, any possible sleeping spots had been wet down with high-pressure hoses. But by night, some of the homeless had returned. Friday the 22nd of June 2012 was no different to any other night. Being clear, dry and warm, for this 46-year-old former chef from Stirling, even at 3am, it was nice enough to leave his tent and to sleep on a bench. Being his favourite spot, Mark Morrison snuggled up in his sleeping bag, gazing at the yellowy haze of the sky as the soothing hub of traffic encircled him. The night was calm. With the tube shut down, he wouldn't be bothered. And as always, keeping out of trouble, he was polite and pleasant to everyone. As far as we know, the two men had never met. Fluent in different languages, it's unlikely that they spoke. And being relatively passive men, nobody heard any screams or saw a struggle. But at a little after 3am, an engineer working at Marble Arch Tube Station saw a man stooping over Mark, who lay slumped by the foot of the bench. Being confronted, Godretala ran off, and the police were called. But it was too late. Mark had been strangled to death with a green piece of tent cord. His life snuffed out, for no reason, by a man he didn't know. But was this murder caused by a situational crisis, as the doctors had said, as part of Godretola's deluded plan to become the King of England, or simply as a ploy to get British citizenship? The next day and the following Sunday, Godretola was arrested for breaching the exclusion order by banging on the gates of Buckingham Palace. But with CCTV footage identifying him as the killer of Mark Morrison, using his fingerprints which had been kept by the Home Office, on Friday the 29th of June 2012, he calmly presented himself at Horse Guards Parade and was arrested. Remanded at the hospital wing of Belmarsh Prison, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Having pleaded guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility, he was given an indefinite hospital order. As of November 2015, he has lived at the Evergreen Lodge Care Home in South Croydon, a facility for men with complex mental health issues. He has improved under medication and counselling, and although limited, he has found work and a social life. It is unclear whether his asylum has since been approved or if he'll be deported upon release. So was this a situational crisis, a cunning ploy, or was it really schizophrenia? We don't know. What we do know is that homelessness is a big problem we refuse to resolve as any reporting of crimes against our city's rough sleepers often go unreported, or in this case, 
badly reported. But homelessness is solvable, and none of it requires a human being being bussed out and hidden elsewhere. As seen at the start of the pandemic, within a single week, almost every rough sleeper was given a bed, a place of safety where they could wash, eat and sleep, with a chance to resolve their problems and to get back onto their feet. But with our crisis almost over, once again, the homeless are back on the street, where they remain nameless, faceless and invisible. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. As always, a non-compulsory chatty McChat face follows after the break, where you can learn a few extra details about this case if you want to. But if it's not your thing, I won't be offended if you don't. A big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Joe Fulton, Harry Morell Hall, Kelly Jackson, Epona Two, and Alex Kolb. I thank you all. I hope that the new Cake of the Week feature isn't proving too delicious for you all and that you haven't coated your Murder Mile goodies in chocolate and scoff them. Although that's something I probably would do. Plus a thank you to an anonymous donator via the supporter link. I'm guessing that was Audrey Tattoo trying to get my affection without Eva knowing. Because as we all know, Eva gets very jealous. And a special thank you to Amanda Harris for your very kind donation via the Murder Mile website. As expected, I spent it on a coot-shaped cake. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Wig of water. Uh.
Hey everyone, how are you all? Are you good? Are you all good and well and healthy and happy? That's the important thing, isn't it? Being healthy and happy. Oh, life. Oh, life. Oh, tired. Oh, this is not the morning. This is late afternoon. Oh, dear. It's been one of those weeks. I kind of got myself ahead. I was like a Saturday. I thought, oh, because I knew it was going to be a busy week. So I thought I'll get myself ahead. So I, I did a lot of work last Saturday. And then uh, I kind of did the tour, which went very well. Thank you to everyone who turned up. And then um, uh, and then I got into town. I was going to meet up with Prince Constable Arsenal Guinness, but he was on a different assignment. Uh, a vital one to save the world, I'm guessing. Uh, have I said hello? Welcome to Extra Mile. I'll do that shortly. I forgot. Uh, anyway, so uh, I, I was like, well, I looked at my phone. I thought, well, I'm in town anyway. I'll go and meet up with my mate Andrew. And we had a couple of beers. Oh dear, yeah, and it was it was lefe, and I hadn't eaten all day. I hadn't had breakfast, didn't have lunch, forgot to have dinner. I was rough as f, rough as f with a, a c and a k and a u in there as well. So yeah, so Monday was a bit of a write off. Uh, Tuesday, uh, Tuesday went very well. Uh, met up with PCAG, which I'll explain very shortly, uh, and then. Uh, yeah, then Wednesday was, I tried to do some work, but I struggled. So instead, I went into town and picked up some more mugs. So I've got a nice collection of Murder Mile mugs. Well done, Michael. Didn't do any work. And then Thursday, which is today, I've just had to finish off writing this episode. And I've just recorded it as well. It's the end of the day. But luckily, that means that means the bell end with his lawnmower opposite. He's not... He was out this morning going... Etc. Uh, luckily, he's not. So, right, I'm going to open some windows and shit. Oh, dear. So, I hope you enjoyed that. That was a bit of a different episode. Open windows. Oh. Windows open. Can't remember if I put sugar in. In uh, hang on, that, 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 that. Right, haven't haven't got a cake of the week because I'm trying to lose some weight so I look less fat at Crime Con. Oh dear. Uh, so I haven't really had except at the start of the week, obviously, because I was a bit hungover. So I had I had quite a few bagels and some cakes and things. Oh dear lord. Anyway, uh, so what else is going on? Um, so Tuesday I met up with Police Constable Arsenal Guinness, the Metropolitan Blood. It's just lovely. I haven't seen my my old pal in ages, so that was really lovely. We uh, met up and had a coffee. Uh, and we had a nice Vietnamese curry, which was very good, just on the corner of Chinatown. Even though we were distracted by uh, by Bellens on rickshaws, even though the the the, the uh, restaurateurs who were there were just shaking their heads because there were guys on the rickshaws going past with music blaring, and they were like, "Everyone's trying to enjoy their meals. Why don't you just piss off?" They're really annoying. The restaurateurs, like you could see it in their eyes, they were like, "If we could kill you, we would." Uh, and then we did uh, we did three. Uh, or yeah, then we went to Coach Norris. We so we did the first interview in Bar Italia on Fifth Street, and then the second and third interview we did in the Coach and Horses pub in Soho, which is very good. A little bit noisy on the second ones because because weirdly we got in there and it wasn't that it was only fifteen people in there, but the second we started talking, 
all the noisy bastards decided to hang around us and started chatting. Uh, but I've listened to the audio and it sounds pretty good. So uh, we'll do that. So that was really good. So thank you, Police Constable Arsenal Guinness, the Metropolitan Blood. Uh, it's very good. I, I asked him in advance if he wanted to see all the questions. And he said no. Uh, I asked. I said uh, you can uh, not answer questions if you want to. And he was fine with that. He answered all the questions. And he was very honest about all the questions. So thank you on behalf of all of us, Police Constable Arsenal Guinness. Uh, the three-part series that that will form, uh, we're coming out in October. And it's called New Blue. So that's recorded. I've just got to piece it all together. What else is going on? Uh, it was busy week for me because obviously uh, back to the hospital because uh, I've got new eye specialists. So we're sorting out new eyes. So it's uh, uh, new uh, lenses for my eyes. So I'm on different ones at the moment. And because uh, uh, my eyes, after years with my eye problems, my eyes are scarred to shit. I've only just I only just noticed the last couple of days because normally I don't look at my eyes because I'm used to popping in lenses and just carrying on. Uh, but these are new lenses that I've had to learn how to put in. They're really weird and different and they, they take a lot of adjustment and I've got to get my fingers in the right place. And they're really difficult. And I was looking at my eyes thinking, why is there blobs in front of the eyes? And I realised it's not. It's, it's, my eyes are scarred up. Uh, so um, I've got new lenses in. They're not quite right. I'm going to have them in for six to eight weeks. They're really annoying. My right eye is seems to be all right. I can read with that one. That's my good eye anyway. Hang on. Kettle's doing. Let that brew for a bit. Remind me to go and pick up. Remind me when I've uh, what, uh, I've uh, done this bit. But I'll, I'll go and get my tea because it's brewing. Uh, yeah, but uh, so the right eye is good. I can read with that. But the left eye, because uh, it's a really odd eye. I've got almost no vision in my in my left. So it's all blurred, but I've got to stick them in because my eyes are going to change shape. And it's really weird. So I'm uh, I because I've got no 3D vision. So I, like yesterday, I kept falling downstairs because I can't can't quite see where my feet are going. It's weird, but uh, hopefully that'll settle down in a couple of weeks. So uh, that's all good. But it was weird. I had, I had a lady who had to teach me how to how to use, how to put the new lenses in and take them out, uh, and I started giggling. And she said, what's wrong? And he sh I said to her, I'm 45 years old and I'm having to learn how to use my own finger. <laughs> and she was trying to be professional, but you could tell that she was having a good old giggle about it. So that's good. So we'll see how see how these lenses do. The, the one on the left is being a real bastard. The one on the right is doing great. Thank you. Uh, what else is going on? Um, thank you to everyone who's left all the new reviews and the kind words recently. It's very much appreciated. I always find it really nerve-wracking you know checking reviews because i I press the button to go and look and then i just think oh do i really want to do this because it's it, like the, the the lovely ones are amazing and brilliant and you know they really g me up but then you'll get one everyone's always the same isn't it you get like 10 good ones and then you get one really shit one and you focus on the shit one and you think why am i focusing on the shit one who really cares the problem is they sting but then that's the great thing all the lovely ones really help soothe it away and i'm trying to become a little bit more harder skinned with these so i don't you know, spend the whole night going. Why? Why am I worried? Why don't they like me? You can't please everyone, so uh, that's all good. God, can you imagine a world if it, instead of people just reviewing podcasters or, or people online, everyone was reviewed? Imagine if we got to that phase because I think it's slightly unfair at the moment that that just some of us are reviewed and we, you know, our lives are. Do you know, if I get a negative review on like uh, TripAdvisor, that could be the end of 
my business do you know because people will see that and go oh go oh do you know luckily I, i've had one recently but i was managed i managed to get triple to take it down because it was clearly bullshit uh but imagine if every imagine if all of us were reviewed online it might get to that point we might get to that point in the world where we all have a a an online uh rating um uh, what else is going on? I think that's it. I think that's all the kind of the catch up stuff. Let's do the questions and then we'll dive in because there's some extra stuff that I definitely want to add in. Uh, so get ready, everyone. Question one. Uh, don't forget, as always, I might balls these up shortly. This is all unedited, so I'm not going to edit it out if I do balls it up. Uh, yeah, I think that's it, isn't it? Or I might edit them out. Yeah, that's the other thing. Okay, let's get ready. Question one, everyone. What was the original purpose of Marble Arch? Question two. What was the original name of the area now called Marble Arch? Question three. What language did Godretola speak? Language, not, not what nationality was he? Question four. Mark Morrison did what as a job? Not that Mark Morrison. Return of the mic. Question five. Who was left dangling from a zip wire waving a flag? Oh, we all remember that, don't we? Question six. What two hospitals did Godretola visit prior to the murder? Question seven. What was the name of the operation to clear the homeless off the street? Did that make sense? I think I bungled that one. Question seven. What was the name of the operation to clear the homeless off the streets? I've just spat on my keyboard. Good night, Daddy. Still doing that from last week. Question eight. Uh, what was placed in Victoria Park and on blocks of flats in East London? Question nine. Mark was murdered using what? And question ten. Who found Godretola stooping over Mark? Let's go and get my team. And that'll give you time to think about those. Whoa. Tea's looking nice and brewed. There we go. Nice and stewed. Thank you very much. All looks good. Give that a squeeze. Oh. Uh, pop in my fake milk. There we go. Fake milk in. Well, it looks like it's going to be quite a thick one. Right, coming back. Oh, that looks yummy. Tea time. Uh, okay, let's have a look at the stuff. Uh, so, as as mentioned, <coughs> oh, as mentioned, Godretola had had his uh, asylum application rejected. We don't know why. This wasn't mentioned in uh, uh, any of the documents I've been able to find out. Uh, although there can be many reasons for that. Um, uh, many people who are uh, asylum applicants to London uh, who need a home are often housed in two places. One is Barry House in Southwark and one is Bridgestock House in Croydon. As mentioned, that's uh, technically in Thornton Heath. Um before uh so this is kind of a dispersal accommodation so it's where it's kind of decided to, if the application is successful they'll be uh dispersed to kind of new accommodation if it's if it's not 
they will be uh, they will be given their letter which tells them that they they're going to be deported. Uh, the judge in the case was uh, Judge uh, Christopher Moss he criticised the doctors who examined Barani before the killing he said I have no doubt from what I have read and heard that the death was entirely preventable uh, he said that uh, it was clear that Barani was suffering from schizophrenia although the doctors had not diagnosed it uh, Judge Moss told Barani, voices were telling you you had to kill someone in order to become the king, uh, that you had to kill in order to become the king of England. I'm sorry, I said the same sentence twice because of my dick. Uh, not because of my dick, because of my dick. Sorry, I'm so tired, really tired at the moment. Uh, it's the end of the day. I haven't stopped, which is a good thing. Or, or is that, I don't know, I could do with going to the shops though. And treating myself to something nice. Something nice but healthy. Uh, as mentioned, uh, uh, Godric Tyler went to Buckingham Palace. So Marble Arch to Buckingham Palace is literally... The, it's, 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 probably, uh, it's probably like a five-minute walk, if that. It's not far. It's kind of the other side of Hyde Park, Hyde Park then kind of turn a left. Uh, he appeared outside the palace in the early hours of Sunday the 17th of June. As mentioned... Um, he said he wanted to get into Buckingham Palace. He said he was uh, the king of Afghanistan, which is I've mentioned was where uh, a lot of the press seemed to have got the the mistaken idea that he was uh, uh, an Afghan as opposed to being uh, an Iranian. But then again, that's the uh, that's that's the that's the problem. As mentioned before, I'm not really dick- ripping into uh, journalists on this, but the problem is, you know, there's not journalists are often given a lot of tasks at the same time. And what are you going to do? You're going to go into town, you're going to double check something, or you're just going to go online and see what the press reports say and then get everyone else's information and then just add some extra details that you found on uh, Wikipedia or or Twitter, you know. So, uh, unfortunately, they don't have time to double check everything, which is why I always say to everyone, don't rely on everything you read in the, the, press, the press. I'm not saying it's a conspiracy, I'm just saying... You know, they don't have time to get everything absolutely accurate. Even in books, books are the same problem. Quite often people will take sources from newspapers and will say, well, it's in a, it's, it's in a newspaper, so it must be accurate. But that's not true. You've got to double check everything. Uh, so uh, arrested again at uh, the... I hope this isn't a question. I can't remember the question. The, uh, the Privy Purse Gate, it probably is. Uh, which is between Constitution Hill and the Queen Victoria Memorial, also known as the North Gate of Buckingham Palace. Uh, police believe that he was uh, mentally unwell, and under Section 136 of the Mental Health, Health Act, uh, that required, said, stated that he could take, they could take him to a place of safety, which they did. They took him to the hospital. So I won't go into this bit uh, that we've already done. Um, it, the doctor said that when he went into hospital, obviously this was all through a... Uh, a translator, I almost balls up a question then. Uh, uh, Godric said that he had come to the hospital to get help with the killing. The doctor said, I asked him what sort of help. Uh, Barani replied, it's the voices in my head telling me to kill someone. And if I go to the hospital, I can get help, help with the killing. Uh, Barani was uh, very agitated uh, apparently because he had a meeting with the UK Border Force Agency to, the next morning at 11am the Border Force Agency is just it's not too far away, it's on St Thomas's Street near London Bridge uh, they said he was very anxious uh, and he was worried that he would miss his last chance of asylum as mentioned in there 
Uh, he also asked the doctors to write him a letter to support his application for asylum. And the doctor said, I was not convinced he was having psychotic episodes. This is the problem with psychotic episodes. Uh, um, Judge Christopher Moss criticised the doctors who examined Barani and said, I have no doubt from what hang on, I've, I've done this bit, haven't I? What a numpty. I've, I've flagged up a bit that I've already done. What a numpty do. Anyway, uh, oh, cool, the light's streaming in behind me and it's really bright. It's blinding my one eye. Not my one eye as in that way. Uh, it'd be weird if I was sitting there like that. Uh, what else, why have I highlighted that? I'm such a dumpty. Nope, that's fine. We'll move on from there. So as mentioned, when he was taken to the, the, to the hospital, uh, they couldn't find... Uh, any sense of uh, he wasn't diagnosed with any mental illness but as we've seen with Daniel Gonzalez before this is why I'm trying to park all of these episodes back to back we're getting a lot of uh, diminished responsibility episodes what I want to do is kind of ask the question with, with each of them uh, you know what is diminished responsibility what is manslaughter do you know where do where do we define the grounds between this obviously with uh, Daniel Gonzalez he wasn't found uh to be guilty under the grounds of diminished responsibility they said it was murder but obviously with this one they're saying it is diminished responsibility whereas with joe ganane from two weeks ago which was the crack addict they said uh they said that wasn't diminished responsibility so where does it start and where does it end that's why i'm trying to put these episodes together so we can kind of look at them side by side and go Hang on, what's happening here? What is, is there a is there a definition? Is it based on what the what the jury said? Is it based on what the judge said? It's kind of it, there doesn't seem to be clarity here. Uh, so even when he was taken to an unnamed hospital, well done, Michael, you didn't balls it up, um, uh, which was an adult mental health hospital in uh, Pimlico. I can get away with that. They said a number of doctors saw him over a number of hours, but it was decided there was no grounds to admit him, i.e. they couldn't find any kind of sense of mental illness, uh, uh, and therefore they, they hadn't got the rights to kind of keep him there. Obviously, the police have no more powers by that point. He hadn't really committed much of a serious crime. He wasn't mentally ill quite a few hospitals have kind of uh, dismissed him so really what could they do um now the finding of mark morrison's body i've kind of glossed over it here but that's because a lot of the details were, aren't actually that clear um it was said that his body was found next to a public bench in the early hours of thursday so that was the murder happened after 3 a.m but it's not clear when he was found they just say the early hours um the Police, uh, Metropolitan Police spokesman said at the time they believed he'd been assaulted. Um, so it's not clear whether Godretola was assaulting him at the time or whether it was just a strangulation. But a post-mortem examination has since given the cause of death as strangulation. Um, officers from the Homicide and Serious Crime Command are investigating and have appealed for witnesses. Uh, and that's the problem. is There weren't many homeless people in and around there at the time. And it's not really clear... Um, they said that the unnamed man who was doing an unnamed job, well done, Michael, uh, uh, at the time who uh, challenged Godretola, uh, it's unclear whether he called the police or um, after Godretola had ran off, whether he kind of just left the man and then the body was found a couple of hours later. It's really not clear. About, I've, I've gone through multiple sources and 
as mentioned in this case, there's not a lot. They, not a lot was reported. No one really seemed to give a shit about getting the case right there. As with a, a lot of this, all that was really important, and if you look at a lot of the articles, all it seems to be is the words highlighted uh, are always homeless and asylum seeker. So that's that's what it seems to be. Um, after the murder, uh, Dr. Cameron Ryan, a psychiatrist at the M Hospital, uh, which is in the Queers, assessed Burani the next day. So this was the day that he was meant to have the uh, the meeting with the UK Border Force. So whether he attended it, we don't know. That wasn't flagged up. Uh, but he hadn't been identified by the police at that point. Burani had been referred to this hospital by a social worker. Um, although uh, his actions, they were saying that they, even at that point, again, they were believing that this was just a way of furthering his asylum application. I'm still a little uncertain on this. I've tried to find a way to explain it better. I'm still a little uncertain um, how this would further his application about whether uh, if you're committed of because if you're committed of a crime, they, they, then you will go to prison. But afterwards, the judge may say, after after you're released, you will be deported. The same, the same with mental health. It seems to be that if you're uh, sorry, that was a burpee, and that was a little bit rude. Sorry, everyone. Uh, it just it just popped out. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, it always pops out, doesn't it? I'm very burpy. I'm very windy and burpy. Everyone knows that. Um, it's uh, if you're held under a uh, a hospital order, which, as mentioned in here, uh, Godred Holland, uh, that was under him. So that means that. Um, Normally, under a section order, you're kind of sectioned for like a period of months and then, you know, you have to reassess it. But a, a, a hospital order means that a doctor can basically say, OK, you're going to stay here until either I determine that you can leave or I think it's the uh, the secretary of state has to be uh, consulted on this. So, so it's quite serious. Do you know, you could you could be there for um, the, the same happened with the Camden Ripper. Do you know, his was on a hospital order. He was there for about about six months and then it was deemed that he was safe to be released. Uh, whereas uh, quite a few prisoners, do you know, uh, still under hospital orders and they're held until ridiculous o'clock, ridiculous o'clock meaning, you know, months, years, decades. Uh, what else have we got? Uh, so again, yeah, uh, Friday the 22nd, so after the murder the same day, he went back to Buckingham Palace, <gasps> tried to get in to see the Queen, uh, said that he was the King of Afghanistan as before, and only the Queen could resolve the problems, uh, which is probably why the Queen looks so miserable at the Olympics. I did, hope, hopefully I haven't edited that out, but she did look bloody miserable at the Olympics, although, do you know, she was a lady in her, in her late 80s, early 90s by that point, and she probably, she, I, don't, I don't think she's a fan of sports, except horsey things. So, uh, yeah. Um, so, again, he was given, uh, uh, he was, uh, he breached his ex exclusion order from the Royal Park. So he was re-arrested, but again, re-released. Because, you know, it's not, it's not a major offence. He's not committing criminal damage. Sunday the 24th. Uh, he was outside the palace again. It was the changing of the guards. So the changing of the guards normally happens uh, uh, around 10.45 and normally lasts around 45 minutes. So I reckon uh, they say he was he was arrested around 11 a.m. Uh, but again, you know, um, they didn't really know who he was at that point. So he wasn't arrested. But on Friday the 29th, 
Uh, again, he returned to Horse Guards Parade, which is 13 Macclesfield, Macclesfield Street, which is at the roughly at the back of 10 Downing Street, uh, so not too far from Buckingham Palace. Um, when he got there, he presented himself to the police and the soldiers who were at Horse Guards Parade. By that point, he'd already been in the papers. The police had kind of put his picture in there, uh, and um, he he was arrested at that point. What else can we say? Uh, the inquest, as mentioned, was held at Westminster Coroner's Court. Uh, he pleaded guilty to grand. Uh, I'm about to say grand theft auto. Why would I say that? He pleaded guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. And the coroner, Dr. Shirley Radcliffe, said there was nothing to suggest that Barani should have been held. Uh, i.e. under the Mental Health Act before the killing. She said there was nothing to suggest he was detainable under the Mental Health Act. I just said that, but yeah, what an idiot. Um, investigation was pretty simple. They had uh, his fingerprints. So as he's an asylum seeker, the Home Office holds his fingerprints for a minimum of 15 years, even if he's rejected. Uh, which is uh, which will come in handy later on in this case. We had the one eyewitness, who I won't mention. They had the tent material and the cord. We don't know uh, whether the tent was uh, Godretola's tent, even if he had a tent, or whether it was uh, it was Mark Morrison's tent, or just any other tent. We don't know. Uh, what else we got? Uh, yeah, I, I, the reporting on this is is terrible. As mentioned, you know, asylum seeker is always in bold. Homeless is always in bold. They couldn't, they they really didn't know whether he was a, an Afghan or an Iranian. But, but if you think about it, that's like people saying that oh, he was either British or French. Who cares? It's like it's, for us, it's very different, you know. So, you know, don't insult the Afghan and Iranian people by saying oh well, you know. Yeah, much of the same. Um, with the press as well, they really couldn't be bothered. Uh, some said the murder happened in Marble Arch. Some said it happened in Piccadilly. Some said it happened in Trafalgar Square, which are two in- entirely different places, and all of them are at least at least a mile, maybe two miles away. So uh, that's a little bit of terrible reporting by them. If you can't even get the bloody place right, right. Uh, they didn't get the dates right as well. Uh, a lot of the cases said it happened on the 16th of June, the 19th of June. And one of them even said it happened on Saturday, the 2nd of March, 2013. So uh, they didn't get the day right. They didn't get the month right. They didn't get the year right. But then again, that's just the standard of sloppy journalism. Um, so as mentioned, he was, oh, this, I hope this isn't the question. He was sent to, uh, let me just scroll up. Let me just double check for a second. Well, I don't think it was a question. I've only just written the questions. Uh, no, I think that's fine. So I can mention this. Right. So as mentioned, he was, uh, found guilty in court. He got a hospital order. Uh, so he's not being sent to prison but he was sent to the evergreen lodge care home in south croydon which is a care home for about 12 men with complex mental health needs uh he'd been there for about two years it was going well he was receiving treatment for a psychotic order and as mentioned he'd found he'd found uh some work and uh, a limited social life and he'd been living there since november uh 2015 but uh, 11th of May 2017, at about 6pm, uh, he went missing from the care home. Uh, officers investigating his disappearance have described it as out of character, and they, said, they said they said they were extremely concerned for his welfare, as he requires medication which he had not taken with him. 
I'm going to read all of this bit out. Detective Chief Inspector uh, Police Arsenal Guinness. Oh, if only, mate. Imagine that. Detective Chief Inspector Richard McDonough. Oh, I've just... Just drip... Oh, I've dribbled... I've spilt my tea. Um, and that's dribbled off my thing. And now it's... Oh, now it's dribbled... Oh, it's dribbled onto my crotch. That's... Oh, Eva won't find that lovely. I'm just going to swig a little bit of tea. I just I just started feeling a wet patch on my crotch and then I realised it was my tea that had spilt. I'm going to have to clean that up shortly. Uh, oh, I've got some tissues here. I will use that so it stops dripping during this bit. Um, Detective Chief Inspector Richard McDonough of the Croydon CID said uh, he had been receiving treatment since his conviction and his care providers have indicated that despite his conviction, his current state of mind leads them to believe that he could be a danger to himself. It is important that Godretola is found as we need to ensure his safety. Those caring for him, boat going past, those caring for him have suggested that with the care and treatment he has been receiving over the years, he is currently not in the same place as he was when he committed the fence, i.e. same place as in mentally, uh, but we cannot be complacent. We do not want the public to be alarmed, but we do want them to be vigilant. If you think you have seen Godretola at any point over the last week or you have any information about his whereabouts, please do get in touch. Police have combed through hours of CCTV footage to, to establish that Godretola boarded the, the 109 bus near Thornton Heath Pond uh, to Norbury at 10pm uh, on the night he disappeared, but there have been no confirmed sightings of him since. Uh, his carer said he was at risk of harming himself and that would increase the longer he went without his medication. Uh, what else have we got? Yep, we've done that. Okay. Uh, 24th of June, 2017. So that was about six weeks later. Uh, it was found that he had fled to France. Uh, his fingerprints have been traced in France where he has made a, made a claim for asylum. Police are now establishing whether he will be forced to return if found. Uh, what else did they say? Oh, uh, police said uh, this week that they have used fingerprint recognition to track the killer to France. His fingerprints were flagged up when he made an asylum claim in France. Because, uh, well, um, back when we were part of Europe, we had a, an, an interconnected... Uh, system with the European countries so if uh, someone made a claim in one country it would flag up in other countries well not immediately but you could you could track it uh, unfortunately we're not part of that system anymore uh, detective sergeant Paul Smith said we have no idea how he got over there it would be likely he left the country clandestine we believe he planned or managed to sneak out in some way. The officer said but that Barani had managed to avoid border checks and there was no trace of him leaving the UK uh, so he must have done that illegally, like sneaking in the back of a van or or, or uh, things like that. I, I guess that does happen. You you only really hear about people sneaking into this country. But I guess, you know, some people need to sneak out as well. Uh, at the moment, we do not know exactly where he is. He would claim asylum in France and then be forced to return several days later. Uh, the police said, I have asked asked to have regular updates on that. And if he does come back to the UK, it will be dealt with properly. 
what else is there? I think that is it. That's as far as I, I could track this down to uh, where it just says the police are investigating. So where he is, we don't know. Uh, obviously, if he commits a crime in this country, it'll probably be flagged up by the by the media. Um, but that's all we know. So uh, last seen in France. Uh, yeah, so an odd one. Odd one. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I wanted to do something different from all the other episodes. Do you know? Uh, I thought I thought this one have a little bit more fun with it, have a little bit more of a satire into it, but also you know, kind of a dig it. Do you know? Not not just the mental health, not just the mental health system that we have, which is which is struggling because it's underfunded. And do you know? I think that I don't, I don't want that people to think that I'm having a rip into that. I'm not. I'm having a I'm having a dig at the fact that you know quite often we we're, we're focused on things that aren't really that important. The Olympics, it was nice. But it wasn't important. It wasn't as important as, you know, solving the the uh, homelessness crisis, which, as mentioned, you know, um, it was solved within a week. Literally, because we had to, we were able to able to turn around and go, right, all the homeless people off the street, all of them were put into into hotels or some accommodation. Some accommodation wasn't particularly good, uh, but they were given beds. Now, the thing is that a lot of not all homeless people, like a lot of people go, oh, we'll give them a, a home and then they'll be fine. But a lot of homeless people don't want homes. That's the point. That's what they're running away from. They don't want re- responsibility. They want to escape. They want to have the freedom. And many, many actually struggled being forced to stay in hotels uh, because it's not what they're used to. They're, they like being outdoors. They like the freedom of it. They don't like being restricted. That's why they're homeless. But it just shows that we can do it if we want to for those who need it we can ho- we can sort out homelessness but we don't so uh, mm. uh let's do the answers to the questions uh i don't think i ballsed up too many i don't think i ballsed up any i think i probably have uh, so let's do this um question number one what was the original purpose of marble arch it was the state entrance to Buckingham Palace. Uh, it was actually commissioned under uh, under the King prior to Queen Victoria. And I can't remember which one he was. Uh, but when Queen Victoria came to power, and I'm, I'm thinking it was not, uh, 1832, but I could be wrong. It could be 1837. Um, Obviously, she didn't want that there anymore. It was in front front of her house. She's like, I don't, I don't want this shit in front of my house. So they moved it to Marble Arch, uh, of which it really doesn't serve a purpose anymore. Um, question number two. Uh, hence, it might be moved again. Question number two. What was the original name of the area now called Marble Arch? Uh, it is called Tibernia. In in some maps, it's still referred to as Tibernia, uh, and um the original name of the street for oxford street which is the street that goes from uh tottenham court road uh down to marble arch was originally called tyburn road um question three what language did godratola speak it was farsi question four what uh, mark morrison did what as a job return up the mac uh, he was a chef. Unfortunately, we don't know where he was a chef or what kind of chef he was. All we know is he was, he was a chef. Uh, he came from Stirling and he lived for a while in Glasgow. Glasgow. Uh, question five. 
Uh, who was left dangling from a zip wire waving a flag? Actually, two flags. It was Bojo the Clown, a.k.a. our former mayor, a.k.a. our current prime minister. Question six. What two hospitals did Godred Toller visit prior to the murder? I didn't balls up this one, so well done me. It was St Thomas's Hospital, which is on the bridge of uh, Westminster Bridge Road, and the Gordon Hospital, which is over in Pimlico. Uh, question seven. What was the name of the operation to clear the homeless off the streets? Operation Poncho. And I hope you're equally as disgusted as I was that something uh, like that would would exist. Uh, yeah, you think people would be treated with respect, but obviously not. Question eight. What was placed in Victoria Park uh, and on blocks of flats in East London? It was batteries of surface-to-air missiles. Uh, although they look very flashy, you can still see the pictures of them online. They're still there today. The problem is surface-to-air missiles, in order for the radar to work, uh, it needs to have a clear day. And, of course, they were placed in, in Britain. And we don't have clear days. We have cloudy days. So uh, the, everyone said, you know, they would work, but, you know, you wouldn't be able to direct the missiles properly. And also... You got you got plane. If a hijacked plane is flying over London and you shoot it down, it doesn't just blow up the plane. The plane goes into like large chunks, right? And then it would fall somewhere, so it would kill someone. So it was a bit of a. I think it was a bit of a showy idea as opposed to a practical idea. Uh, question nine: Mark was murdered using what? It was a green piece of tent cord. Uh, as mentioned before, uh, we don't know whether it was his or whether it was Godretola's or whether it was someone else's. Uh, and question 10. Who found Godretola stooping over Mark? It was an engineer working at Marble Arch Tube Station. So, there's that. Oh, dear. What time is it? Oh, it's almost end of day. Almost end of day and I need to go and, I need to go and take a break and charge up. Oh... And maybe maybe go to the shops and get myself something nice as a treat. Well done, Michael. Anyway, hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week's episode, I can't remember what it is. Uh, I might move the episodes around a bit, I think. But anyway, hope you enjoy, in, all enjoyed that. That was episode 142, The Invisible Men of Marble Arch. Have yourself a good week. Stay safe. Be good. Lots of love. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.